tweet at Miriam O'Call. Well, when George Mitchell described his time helping broker peace in Northern Ireland, he said we had 700 bad days and then one good day, which changed the course of history. Well, a new book, One Good Day, is the really fascinating insider account of those negotiations from the senior Irish diplomat David Donoghue, who was then Irish head of the Anglo-Irish Secretariat in Belfast. It explores the complex, delicate, often frustrating series of talks that eventually drew the troubles to an end. And David's joined me in studio. David, you're very welcome to the programme. Thanks very much, Miriam. Great pleasure to be here. Well, it's absolutely fascinating, Reid. I'm fascinated in the course. Now, listen, Frank has just stayed here briefly. Wasn't it lovely, though, that he just spoke earlier about the importance that your um, father was so important, Dennis, in his career? Well, first of all, a wonderful interview uh, between the two of you. And uh, it was very touching for me, Frank, to hear your memories of him. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I was uh, bowled over by it, Frank. Well, I'm glad to, to be able to tell you in person. I sent, um, I know Emma um, for years, actually, and I sent her an email uh, giving my sympathy to uh, all your family. He was an astonishing man. He was terrifying, but he was an <laughs> astonishing man. And uh, he was an inspiration, certainly, when I was an undergraduate to work um, and to do as well as possible. Yes. Um, but I, I would never have crossed him. <laughs> well, I was in UCD at the time, but... I, I remember, um, you did your MA uh, on Rilke, didn't you? That's not... Come Absolutely. on, a memory! I met, no, I just, I loved Rilke, and I remember meeting this guy, yeah. um, and even more being impressed by his interest in Rilke than Lady Pistone, who's son. <laughs> yeah, they're all brilliant, of course, the Donnies. Uh, um, just before we get into this fascinating book, your dad, of course, was from Ostrever, wasn't he? Uh, Warren Point, Mary. Yeah, yeah, and he did an interest, of course, in the north. That would be put it mildly, yes. <laughs> uh, but he kept it to himself on the whole. It tended just to be in kind of the family circle, and in particular in conversations with me that he, uh, he, he ventilated his views. But it, as I tried to explain it in the book, uh, his father had been in the OUC mm. in Warren Point, a, a sergeant, but he was a, a Catholic from Kerry and he didn't prosper, uh, to be honest, uh, in the, uh, given the political situation, the unionist majority in Warren Point. So that frankly was a major uh, formative influence on, on uh, my father. Now, this book, for anyone who's interested in the peace process, it's fascinating, David. And you were right there at the heart of it. Even from, I think it's fascinating, there's no real agreement on whether it's called the Belfast Agreement or the Good Friday Agreement. Even That's that right. is amazing. I mean, it? one of the things I'm amused by is that the Irish Times um, still uh, pedantically, in my view, describes it as the Belfast Agreement, whereas others do a kind of Belfast stroke Good Friday Agreement uh, combination. But as, as I make clear in the book, uh, it basically arose because uh, uh, Bertie O'Hearn felt that this would be a good uh, title. He had uh, become aware of, uh, I mean, various people had said to him uh, that uh, they had noticed that it was concluded on Good Friday. So, uh, but officially, neither the Belfast Agreement nor the, uh, the Good Friday Agreement is the actual title. So it's, it's, it's an informal working title we've had for the last uh, 25 years. There's so many fascinating snippets in this book. I mean, that last night, the Thursday, Holy Thursday. I mean, I think you were there, of course. More, more outside there, the there. gate in yes, the rain. I remember I you very clearly. <laughs> but um, George Mitchell had almost put a deadline, hadn't he? This baby son. Even that's quite interesting. He said, "Listen, lads, if we haven't got it by midnight, Holy Thursday." Well, to, to be honest, yes, he had indeed, yeah. him from several weeks back, he had put a deadline of Thursday, the 9th of, of April, which was a Holy Thursday. In the event, we were all so uh, 
distracted by uh, pressures of one kind or another that we all forgot about the deadline. So by the time Thursday midnight came along, nobody noticed it and nobody said, uh, are we now in overtime? But I think it was gradually clear that from about the Wednesday evening on, we would have to, we would stay there for as long as it took. Now, Mitchell had made, had made clear that he would be going back to New York that weekend uh, for very good family reasons. So it was clear to us that there would be de facto a cut-off when Mitchell headed for the plane, assuming that he meant it. Uh, we weren't quite sure did he mean it or not. So I think we knew that uh, it would go on till Friday or Saturday and probably stop at that point. And of course, it went on all during the night. I find it very interesting. I didn't know this, that... Um, obviously, Tony Blair and Bertie Hearn, they met with Martin McGuinness and Jerry Adams on their own. They wouldn't That's even right. let Mo Moleman from well, about 5am. To be precise, Miriam, I think yeah. it, it, Bertie would have been quite happy if uh, Mo had been there. But let's just say that uh, I think Tony Blair preferred to handle it that way, the the, the two leaders yeah. dealing with uh, Adams and McGuinness. Uh, but um, yes, it was... Uh, uh, it was important for many reasons. I mean, you remember Blair was actually uh, still relatively new to the, the, the whole political scene in, in Northern Ireland. He didn't know uh, Adams and McGuinness to any great extent. But my impression is that uh, that, that meeting was crucial in terms of uh, giving him a sense of where the Republican leaders were coming mm. from. And uh, uh, But, you know, it, showed, it was a sign of the personal commitment by both of them to getting that agreement uh, that they they would sit there for hours uh, uh, with with those two figures who were among the pivotal figures. They weren't the only ones, but they mm. were among the pivotal figures for an agreement. I suppose on the other side were the pivotal figures were David Trimble and the Ulster Unionists. And I mean, they equally came back, didn't they, with different questions, worries, right up to the end. Like, that's right, yeah. yes. Uh, we all hoped or thought that on Good Friday morning itself that we were home and dry. And then, as, as the book brings out, um, and you remember to yourself, yeah. um, uh, uh, problems began to develop and it was clear that quite a number of the unionists were seeing the uh, small print of the agreement, as it were, for the first time. Because for one reason or another, we hadn't produced uh, or, uh, approved texts each time changes were made. There was really only one text on the table from the previous uh, Monday evening. So a lot of the unionists saw the, the, the finalised text for the first time or began to hear about uh, deals that had been made overnight and they uh, were destabilised by these, in particular by the issue of um, decommissioning and, and, and the likelihood that Sinn Féin could become ministers uh, without there having been mm-hmm. uh, advanced decommissioning. Uh, and uh, uh, I mean that obviously put, from, put the cat among the pigeons, and, and they began to. Uh, there was a kind of an in, internal revolt that morning, and, and it led eventually to uh, Jeffrey Donaldson um, leaving in the afternoon. Though he, he he left quietly, but it was obvious that he wasn't happy with what was on offer. That morning, though, on Good Friday, I think you have this in the book as well, David. That. When Mitchell McLaughlin gave a fairly positive interview to the media, yeah. sometimes we matter. <laughs> oh, absolutely. That it was a good sign. You all felt, oh, we could, we could, be go- we could do this now. Well, full marks to the media, first of all, for having braved the elements. Uh, I, I remember um, um, that whole period was not easy for, for, for the media who were kind of camped outside. But M- Mitchell McLaughlin had actually been rather downbeat earlier in the night and uh, some significance was read into that, perhaps wrongly. Uh, and it meant, though, that 
that in turn, when he was more upbeat by about half seven, and the feeling was that uh, we were actually uh, perhaps heading for a good Friday after all. Um, but it shows you that, you know, from one interview to the next, uh, <laughs> the, the whole world can change or can appear to change. I loved, I've heard obviously about the phone calls during the Thursday night with Bill Clinton, but they really did matter, didn't they? They did. And and his own commitment was uh, remarkable. I mean, I, th- I think at one point he was, I mean, he was up half the night in, in Washington. And uh, I mean, again, I tried to explain, and there's nothing new about this, that uh, Clinton was uh, unusual among American presidents in the degree of detail with which he uh, uh, um, looked at the Northern Ireland problem. He, 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 he could tell you almost, you know, which alliance candidate had won in, in the South Belfast ward. In the, I mean, he was an amazing person to absorb detail. And, uh, and then he had a very strong personal interest because of his mother's background and, and, uh, and the fact that he'd been a Rhodes Scholar in Oxford when the trouble started. All these things combined to make him a, an exceptional asset for both Bertie Ahern and, and Tony Blair. And it had always been planned that he would be uh, active with the leaders somehow. And he had already met them, of course, uh, uh, on several occasions. So in a way, he was an asset that we were waiting to deploy. You have a line in it as well that I didn't know before that David Trimble, when talking about negotiations, said just because you have a past doesn't mean you can't have a future. I he said that so once or twice, and it yeah. is actually, it, it, it's, a, um, it's a succinct uh, um, uh, perspective, which I liked. I mean, he, he um, you know, it does seem to me to sum up the spirit of the Good Friday Agreement that however unlikely the partners were and however unpalatable some of them were for each other, that ultimately we could build a, a shared future. So um, I, I, I thought it was quite a, a, a pithy and, and far-sighted view of, um, uh, of what w- would be possible and what was in fact encapsulated in the Good Friday Agreement. And of course, the great John Hume and the great Seamus Mallon. I think Seamus said it was the happiest day of his life. Yes, Isn't that correct? Um, uh, it's funny. I remember that phrase very, very clearly. Um, I think when he was reminded of it a few years ago, he he, he recognised there might have been one or two other days which were just as happy um, uh, from a personal point of view. But I think he just meant that the sense of a breakthrough, of, of um, realisation of what he and others have been working for for a long time. But the happiest day of my life is what, is what he said to me as we were sort of uh, uh, waking up that morning and um, I, I found that actually very, very moving. Absolutely. And John Hume, of course, said it had been a very good Friday. Ireland, you say, would never be the same again. Are you aware, David, I mean, like you'd been running the Secretariat, you've had huge experience as a diplomat in so many places, that you were watching history unfold and you were part of it? Um, no. I wasn't really um, directly aware at the time, Miriam, I'd have to say. I, I suppose, you know, you're dealing with the, the momentary stresses, the, you know, the, the rushing around new drafts of this, new drafts of that. Perhaps only on, on the Friday itself, um, uh, in the morning we did feel, I mean, roughly the time I, mm. I remember talking to you, we did feel that uh, uh, something was about to happen. But then the clouds gathered again, if I can pursue the, the metaphor, and we had we knew there was trouble in the Unionist camp. Uh, and at that point I thought it was all over. Uh, and it was only in the afternoon when Mitchell rang us and said, you won't believe this, but uh, uh, David Trimble has just come to me to say he's going for the agreement. 
that's really knocked me over and it knocked all of us over. I think we didn't expect that. We thought that, it, as usual, this particular initiative would, would collapse. So then we all rushed in because <laughs> we wanted to make sure that Trimble didn't change his mind. Um, <laughs> and, and and then, you know, as the book shows, we, we, we had this uh, remarkable uh, final um, session where Mitchell just asked each leader to say, in effect, yay or nay. And we were expecting all kinds of uh, complications and so on. But in, in in the event, they practically all just said for the agreement or yes. In the case of Trimble, it was just one word, yes. And uh, I found that quite remarkable. Um, so it was the simplicity with which the whole thing and the suddenness with which the whole thing came to an end uh, that, that, that impressed me. Do diplomats allow themselves emotions? Did you, at that moment when David said yes and they all said yeah. Did um, you feel emotional? I, I, later, I felt emotional. I was numb, really, I'd have to say. You know, the fatigue where we had all been up for seven nights in a row. Um, and uh, um, uh, I think later on, you know, a, a day or two later when I was reflecting the whole thing, uh, I, I wasn't personally emotional. Others were, I'd have to say. Um, you know, I was struck by some uh, Northern Ireland office officials whom I would have regarded as fairly hardened types mm. who were quite overcome. Now, they were people who were from the North and therefore perhaps, you know, this meant something more powerful than, than it meant to, uh, to ourselves. But, but still, uh, no, numbness is what I remember mainly. It's an absolutely wonderful book. I have it in my hands and you capture the drama and also the importance of it. And it's uh, called One Good Day, My Journey to the Good Friday Agreement. It's published by Gill Books and it's available now. Everyone should buy it. It's just a fascinating read. David Donner, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much. Frank McGuinness, thank you too. You're sitting here like the teacher listening here, which is great. (laughs) (laughs) 